3: Fabian, what did you have for breakfast today?
2: I had, as I do most weekdays, nothing. I I try and I I normally just eat lunch and...
3: um dinner and are you doing that because you are into this intermittent fasting thing or do you basically just don't have time for breakfast that's my reason for not having breakfast
2: more of a yeah for me more intermittent fasting it's been trending for a while it seems like and i i kind of just jumped on the bandwagon and and have been doing it for a couple of years now and and to be honest, I, um, I've i gotten accustomed to it. I, I quite like it. I feel more energetic during the days.
3: But getting on the bandwagon, so do you think this is sort of solidified in research that it's good for you? Or are you more of the sort of you want to join the hype?
2: Uh, no. Ever since I was diagnosed with cancer, I've been, or perhaps prior to that as well, I've been sort of... I'm just testing things out and trying to see what works for my body and my, my metabolic system. I think that's what people should do because to, in order to find what, whatever works for them.
3: Whatever works for them. But hopefully, and I do think, there are certain things that you can do that are basically good for you that we can find in research. Uh, and with us today, we have a fantastic person when it comes to nutrition. Probably one of the most knowledgeable people about nutrition coupled to cancer that has ever walked on the face of this earth, Dr. David Heber.
2: I am like a kid on Christmas morning. That's how excited I am. I have so many questions to shoot out. I'm hoping to get so many answers. So uh, yeah,
3: let's let's bring this on. He's the chairman and founder of the Herbalife Nutrition Institute. He's also a member of the McCormick Science Institute, the Pistachio Health Advisory Board, and consult with Palm Wonderful Incorporated. His research include obesity treatment and nutrition for cancer prevention and treatment. He's also the founding director of the UCLA Center for Human Nutrition. Amongst other things, he was included in the Thomson Reuters, The World's Most Influential Scientific Minds, in 2014. And from 2002 to 2012, he was in the top 1% of scientists whose work was cited by other authors of scientific papers in the field of agricultural sciences as surveyed by Thomson Reuters. In addition to writing over 255 peer-reviewed professional texts. He earned his MD from Harvard Medical School in 1973. That's quite a resume. Shall we get this show on the road? Let's get it on the road. So, uh, for today's episode, please welcome Dr. David Heber.
4: Well, thank you. Nice to be here with you.
3: Very nice to have you on the show. And we met almost exactly one year ago at the Milken Institute Conference back in uh, Washington, D.C. That's right. Yeah, and we had some interesting chats about nutrition, uh, I remember. It it has stayed with us since.
4: Well, you know, it's interesting. Diet and lifestyle are estimated to account for about 30% of cancer risk. And obesity, which is the most common problem in nutrition in the world, is associated with multiple forms of cancer. Yeah, You know, I've been studying this since 1977, and uh, I directed a National Can- Cancer Institute clinical nutrition research unit at the University of California, Los Angeles, which included 104 scientists in different fields focused on nutrition and cancer. And I've written over 250 peer-reviewed articles and four books for the public, including "What Color Is Your Diet?" focusing on colorful fruits and vegetables for cancer prevention. Written in 2001, it's still true today.
3: Wow! 250 peer-reviewed articles. How do you even have time? I mean, uh, we met with <laughs> scientists, etc., that are super happy about the one peer-reviewed uh, journal or similar that they have written.
4: Well, you know, I've been in the field for 43 years. So if you divide it by the number of years, it's not that impressive.
3: Can you tell us, there's so much lingo when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to what you should eat, when it comes to eating healthy. What, what is the real difference between diet and nutrition, for example? Just to know how we should sort of walk around these words. Of
4: course. You know, the word diet comes from a regimen. So an idea for most people is to use a diet to lose weight but nutrition comes from the term nourishing which means to give your body everything it needs every day and this applies to protein to vitamins and minerals and to other micronutrients it's like the phytonutrients in fruits and vegetables
3: very nice and then by that standard nutrition is way more positive than diet. That's correct. And how important is nutrition when it comes... I mean, you're specialized in nutrition and cancer and nutrition and obesity. So how are they interlinked? And what is the importance of nutrition when it comes to cancer patients?
4: Well, you know, for cancer, obesity is connected to multiple forms of cancer, including breast, prostate, colon, uterine, gallbladder, and kidney cancer. So we know that the inflammation coming from fat cells can promote cancer at all stages, before it forms, during treatment, and while you're trying to prevent relapse.
3: I find that so interesting. It's pretty obvious, I think, from a logical standpoint, that everything is sort of interlinked. Obesity can affect cancer. How much of that information do you think gets uh, sort of... How much of that information do you think cancer patients under-treatment and after-treatment, are being informed about this?
4: I don't think it's good now, because most oncologists are are focused on the treatment using chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. And the patients are more concerned about nutrition. But this is an irritation to the oncologist, because they bring them all kinds of information from the internet and crazy diets.
3: What what is the reason for the not so great uptake of this kind of information. Is that there has been a sort of a historic lack of research in the area, or is it simply because of monetary incentives? So what is your take on this?
4: I think it's a mixed bag. First of all, nutrition was not taught in medical schools. You know, the American tradition and the British tradition comes from military medicine, where you simply get the soldier back onto the battlefield. So therefore, nutrition, lifestyle, those things are not thought to be as important. So they were delegated to dieticians and nurses and not to the doctors. And so they really thought it was below them to really deal with this. Now, in terms of the research, it's split up in different areas. You have population research that clearly shows the association of cancer nutrition nutrition. Then you have animal studies, which clearly define the mechanisms. But then the hard part is the so-called clinical trials, which are used to define drugs as useful. And that's very hard to apply to nutrition. So the amount of clinical evidence is very limited. And that clinical evidence is what motivates oncologists to include nutrition in evidence-based medicine.
3: That is very interesting and also a little bit scary that we have this sort of vast amount of knowledge, but we don't implement it in the way that it probably should be implemented. What is the, how much has that evolved from a historical standpoint? I mean, we talked about the history, but what, how do you foresee the future? When is this going to be well, part of the regimen for sort of cancer treatments?
4: Well, I'm very optimistic because with the discovery of the microbiome the 14 trillion bacteria in your body, we now know that this is important for immunotherapy. Recent studies on metastatic melanoma have found that people who got broad-spectrum antibiotics would kill off the microbiome and not respond to the immunotherapy. So this pointed out the connection of the microbiome to the intestinal immune system. And of course, the microbiome is influenced by diet. So we're on the threshold of new studies to look at how the microbiome and immune system affected by diet will enhance all forms of cancer treatment.
3: Very interesting. And could it be, I mean, it's on everybody's lips that the microbiome in your sort of in your stomach is the is the key sort of to unlocking your health. Uh, does that get very affected by different types of treatments and medicines, et cetera, as well?
4: Absolutely. There's very good evidence that chemotherapy and uh, radiation and immunotherapy work through the microbiome, both in terms of effectiveness and also side effects. So having a healthy microbiome can minimize the side effects.
3: Very interesting. And I mean, Fabian, as a it's really hard to know what to call it, but that somebody that has been through cancer treatment and is now in rehabilitation, should we call it in, like that?
2: Uh, in remission, about to be uh, declared cured uh, in a few months. Yeah. And uh, I mean, for me, this is so interesting. I, I love the fact that you're talking about n- not only nutrition during uh, treatment, but also nutrition in order to avoid uh, a relapse. I think me and a lot of people that have gone through cancer. Um we have to, to learn how to live with this idea that can, the cancer might come back. And many of us are very interested in understanding how, how we can optimize uh, nutritional intake in order to avoid that relapse. And I would just love to hear general takes uh, from your end.
4: Well, it's not just what you eat. It's also exercise. You know, the muscles are very uh, dependent on exercise and the proper amount of protein. So what I've emphasized in my research is assessing the body composition and then matching the protein intake to the muscle mass combined with exercise. So you need to get one gram per pound of lean body mass or two grams per kilogram every day, but it needs to be divided into your various meals and also at least 20 grams within 30 minutes to one hour after completion of your daily exercise session. So the period of relapse prevention is really a period of rehabilitation where you build up your body back to the metabolic state it had before you were treated for cancer.
2: Right. And and just to clarify, so you're saying 2 grams of protein per kilo?
4: Per kilo of lean body mass. Now, to find your lean body mass, you have to do a measurement called bioelectrical impedance, where you put a small electric current through the body, these machines are widely available and allow you to know how much lean mass or fat-free mass you have you have in your body. It also tells you how many calories you burn per day, so you can build a whole nutritional program out of this one three minute measurement.
2: There must be so many things you know here uh, in regards to what one should and should and should not eat, uh, and and you're talking about colorful f- food. Uh, yes. I have, I think I have about one or two fruits a week. Uh, I should probably up that again a bit.
4: Well, I have seven colored well, color groups. So let me start. The red group is tomatoes and watermelon. They contain lycopene. The orange group is carrots, squash, and pumpkins. They have alpha and beta carotene. The green group is broccoli, Brussels sprouts, bok choy, horseradish, all of what are called cruciferous vegetables. They have something in it called glucosinolates, and these also are cancer preventative. Then we have the white-green group. This is onions, chives, and garlic, and they have allyl sulfides. And then we have the red-purple group, which is all of the berries and pomegranate, which I've studied pomegranate since 2002. Very powerful antioxidants. So you have all of these groups that help you to prevent Cancer. the The yellow orange group is citrus fruits, which is orange, uh, lemons, and grapefruit, and these contain what are called flavonoids, citrus flavonoids, and these are very also very powerful antioxidants. Now, for all of these things I've mentioned, there's very good evidence in the laboratory. There's very good evidence epidemiologically, and it's been collected by the American Institute of Cancer Research around the world. But there's very little clinical, clinical trial evidence. That's where we're missing it.
3: Yeah. And, and I mean, and this is just sort of taking on the voice of, the, of people under treatment that are interested. It's obviously, it's very interesting to hear about seven different groups of fruits and vegetables. Yes. But how do you incorporate that into your <laughs> diet or it your nutrition? Very easy. Very it, it, easy. But and also a very follow easy. up, and, and also yeah. a follow up question to that: Is there any parts of this which is more important uh, than the other?
4: Oh well, I think that first of all, variety and diversity is very important. So what you can get hundred grams of each of the seven color groups. Each hundred grams is a serving, and very easy to do for me personally. I have a, a protein shake with uh, berries in the morning, blackberries, raspberries, blueberries, and pomegranate. And so pomegranate juice that I add in along with soy milk. Then for lunch, you would have some uh, salad, again, with a lot of colorful tomatoes and various things added in. And then for dinner, you would have a low fat protein, which could be plant protein or animal protein. And then two thirds of your plate should be colorful fruits and vegetables. You can steam yams and spinach and broccoli and asparagus, et cetera. And I I love to have rocket salad, which which is a wonderful thing. We call it arugula in America and rocket in UK. And it's actually in the broccoli family. It has kind of a tangy taste. And it's another way you get that group in.
2: Yeah. And and, w- and when you're saying so low-fat protein, um, does that yeah. mean are you in favor of uh, sort of I, – I took you for a vegan or like a vegetarian, but would you say – It could
4: be. It could be. There are 18% of the world now is vegetarian. Oh, wow. Vegans are a little more strict. They don't eat eggs or milk. Uh, and then uh, the omnivores are very common now. <laughs> People eat everything, you know. <laughs> And there are pescatarians who eat fish with the vegetables. There are flexitarians. There are all kinds of crazy stuff. So I think low-fat meats are like breast of chicken or breast of turkey, ocean-caught fish, not farmed fish. And there are now many plant burgers or plant meat equivalents that taste just as good as meat. You know, I consult with a spice company as well as a company that's making these new plant, plant meats. So there's a whole future out there of healthier diets, better for you and better for the planet.
2: And so what I hear now is that I should really be focusing on what about con- conventional carbs like rice and stuff? Is that a no-go or?
4: Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, rice, potatoes, pasta, uh, cakes, cookies, uh, pastries. These are what are called refined carbohydrates. Yeah. The general recommendation is about 100 grams per day. Most Americans eat over 300. Mm. And more importantly, they eliminate the fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. Yeah. So rice you know, it's, it's, and potatoes, they're, they're okay, but have a small amount. A full cup is 250 calories. So about a half a cup would be equivalent to a serving of fruits or vegetables.
3: I have a follow-up question to um, to your answer about protein, because we talked about how much protein one should have as intake on a daily basis. What happens if you have too much?
4: Ah, well, the World Health Organization classifies about 15% of total calories as normal protein. 30%, which is what I'm uh, advocating, which is about one gram per pound of lean body mass or two grams per kilogram of lean kilogram of lean body mass has been studied in eight countries in Europe in a study called the Diogenes study. And what they did was they took people who had lost weight for six months successfully, and they randomized them to all different groups of high protein or low protein and high glycemic index or low glycemic index carbohydrates. So the low glycemic index would be the fruits and vegetables we talked about. And the high glycemic index would be the rice and the pasta that you talked about. And what they found is after six months, all the people on the various diets regained their weight, except for the group that had high protein and low glycemic index. So that's the best maintenance diet to maintain normal weight in the long term. And it's very safe. The US Department of Agriculture has a a very careful study that between 10% and 35% of protein calories is safe. Now there's a a myth about kidney disease, which um, that high protein might cause a problem. If you have kidney disease, you need to consult your nephrologist about the proper amount of protein. But for the general population, the amount of protein I mentioned is perfectly safe.
2: And so I'm I'm picking up 30% protein
4: of total calories and it's between it's between 25 and 30% depending on how much exercise
2: you do. And what about and then low lised calories? Well is that 70% as in the rest or what happens to fat?
4: Fat is is naturally there at about 20% of total calories. Now I recommend supplementing omega-3 fatty acids which are fish oils. Yeah. And cutting out hidden fats. Now to flavor foods Olive oil and avocado are omega-9 fats, and those are monounsaturated and pure, perfectly healthy, and you also find those in nuts.
2: Okay, well, then we have the whole. You have the whole <laughs> diet.
4: Oh, except, except, I do recommend supplements. I think a multivitamin, multi, multimineral every day, calcium and vitamin D, and I, I educate myself on other supplements. Always tell the oncologist about them. But I take a number of supplements because I've studied nutrition carefully.
2: Good. So do I. I'm a huge fan of supplements.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda-approved weight loss medications like wagovi and zepp for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans to get started visit plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes
2: nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt
1: until you tried it on
0: same goes for your health care
1: to get started visit plushcare.com weight loss that's plushcare.com weight loss
3: and i need to add a question here because i'm sure. a big fan of balance and that is the one thing that my mother has taught me that i have <laughs> really i think improved my life but when it comes to balance um what I think is very interesting to hear in these conversations is what is sort of the marginal value with adding or doing something in a different way? You can read about, obviously, we have a problem in the world today with a lot of people eating too much. What, what is sort of the, what is what is the gain of eating, of having the right sort of nutritional intake versus eating too much, but also adding supplements?
4: Ah, well, you know, it's interesting. We humans are evolved eat a lot of food because starvation was always man's condition for the last 50,000 years until about the last 200 years. And then in the last 50 years, the the food manufacturers got very clever. They made foods that were 10% sugar by weight and 20% fat by weight. And that's called the bliss point. And they create all these snack foods, colas, et cetera. And and we had an absolute epidemic of obesity worldwide. It was discovered in the United States in the 1990s when uh, the rate of obesity went up by about 25%. And I remember when it was first discovered and it stayed pretty stable. And around the world, there's something called the global nutrition transition. And this is where countries that always had malnutrition suddenly now also have obesity due to the in- introduction of fast foods and colas. So what's happening is the food industry is addicting us to foods that are not good for our bodies. So balancing means getting your diet under control and matching it to your human metabolism. And for someone, I think this is,
2: this is so uh, valuable, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up a lot of these things, but for someone that is, you know, is there something that you would? There's a lot for someone that has never uh, sort of thought about these things in the past, and listening to this episode might have just been recently diagnosed. Uh, you know, there's gonna be a, there's a lot of information to take in for that person. So, is there something that you would, beyond everything else or above everything else, suggest for this person as a good start?
4: Yes. Well, first of all, I recognize the emotional burden of being a cancer patient. So I say, only listen to me about 87% of the time. Take that 13% and have some pleasurable eating that you enjoy. Yeah. You don't want to be over-restricted. There's actually a disease we call orthorexia. Yeah. Where people are so concerned with everything they eat that it causes secondary emotional problems. So enjoy life, ma- make your changes slowly, make good foods taste good, and get off of the foods that are being thrown at you.
2: Nice. And, and just a last last thing that I never picked up, and you might've mentioned it. So high, was it high lysed carbo, so the rice, is that a very little to minimal intake or what is your thought on that?
4: Well, let me explain what I meant. The refined carbohydrates cause a rise in blood sugar After you eat them, much more quickly than a complex carbohydrate with fiber in a fruit or vegetable or whole grain. So, the high glycemic index is a measure of how fast the glucose comes into your bloodstream. And by cutting those down, you change the hormonal responses in your body. So, you deposit less fat, you have less inflammation. And also you get the benefit of the fiber on your digestive tract because you feed the healthy bacteria and then get a healthier microbiome. Wonderful. So
2: you're a a big fan of LCHF, more or less, or keto.
4: Not really, The, the low carbohydrate, high fat diet never emphasized what was that low carbohydrate. And it should not be refined carbohydrates. Got it. Got it: And the keto diet I'm not a fan of because it has too little carbide, so you're going to be fatigued and depressed for the first two to three weeks until your body uh, adapts. Now there are people who can do it.
3: And this is where balance comes in, I think. Definitely. And, and, I, and I think it's also one of the problems with diets, right? because you're, you're on a diet and you sort of you try to make your uh, life better in a couple of weeks, in a couple of months, and then when you've reached your end goal then you start behaving just as you did back when you didn't feel yeah. as you wanted to feel.
4: That's correct. That's why it's important to get into cooking and right kinds of foods that taste good and make long-term changes that you can continue for the rest of your life. Wonderful.
2: Yeah. And we have to, of course, cover the last and uh, the most heated out of all things to discuss when it comes to cancer nutrition. Sugar. So refined sugar.
4: Sugar w- became... a. Uh, uh, a target in cancer. Because you remember I told you about those early studies that I did. Yeah. And it turns out that whole body glucose utilization by tumors is high. So people think that the sugar feeds the tumor. Actually what's going on is the inflammation is changing your entire hormone balance. So it's true that sugar does promote fat gain it also promotes inflammation, but it is not what grows your tumor. So, by cutting sugar to zero, your body is going to break down protein to make sugar from amino acids. So you can't fool Mother Nature, and it's not that simple.
2: Thank you.
3: Debunked. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's very that, that's very interesting. What is your best single advice that you are able to give? Uh, to everyone that is undergoing treatment for cancer today?
4: First of all, try to get your adequate calories in between treatments. You know, with chemotherapy, we often tell people, don't eat your favorite foods the day you're going to get chemotherapy because you can get an acquired taste aversion when you get nausea and vomiting from the chemotherapy. That's less of a problem today than it used to be because we have very good drugs like ondocentron for nausea. However, you're gonna have an inflammation. So you need to rest after your chemotherapy and then re-nourish yourself over that next 24,
3: 24 hours. Very sound advice. And I think that is very appreciated by our listeners. Is that also the reason why we hear from, both from Fabian and from many of our members on War on Cancer that a lot of them have, well, they experience that they haven't been given proper sort of advice when it comes to nutrition but a lot of them have said that the doctors basically say as long as you eat you're fine or eat whatever makes you happy that's the sort of advice that we correct here yeah
4: but well, that comes from a, a base of ignorance <laughs> because they haven't been educated on nutrition and cancer so i'm going to my book is a textbook it's really targeted at oncologists yeah and i always tell my patients Buy the book and give it to your oncologist as a present because that way we can educate the oncology community and benefit other patients.
3: And I I just think it's so interesting because we already know today that nutritional intake can cause cancer. So by that standard definition, it is also, I mean, sorting out your nutrition could be preventative and most likely is.
4: Especially today where we have better treatments for cancer, you're looking at a survivorship. And how you're going to prevent relapse, and nutrition's a big part of both of that.
3: So why isn't this a bigger thing? I just think it's well, as uh, I, I just mentioned, think it's strange. Yeah,
4: you know, politically that's true. The doc, the doctors are focused on drugs. The next big breakthrough, targeting genes, uh, immunotherapy, and it's going to be up to the drug companies to realize that their drugs will work better in a healthier patient.
3: Exactly.
2: Yeah. You know, Steve Jobs, for instance, he tried to cure himself through eating C, vitamin C, and a lot of fruits. Can you? I mean, you must have encountered many throughout the years that claim that you can eat yourself throughout to a to surviving cancer. What is your thought on that?
4: I think I think what Steve Jobs' case really reflects is: don't be your own doctor. You know, go and get advice from others. He actually had a very treatable form of cancer called insulinoma. We have a drug called diazoxide, which could have been used early on to help treat that. But instead, he spent so much time thinking he was the one who could treat himself that he delayed so long that it became metastatic. So when you have an early diagnosis, please see an oncologist. Get their opinion. Get their treatment. And then also include nutrition. But don't pretend that nutrition is going to cure cancer.
3: No. And I I think that that is a very powerful and important message to give to everyone because your doctors, the pharma companies, everyone around you is doing their best to make you survive. And taking most of those advice into consideration and trying to adapt your life accordingly will probably give you a higher chance of actually surviving. Absolutely. What about alcohol?
4: Ah, Alcohol is connected with a number of forms of cancer, uh, most commonly related to the liver and also the esophagus. And uh, in women, there's some data on alcohol and breast cancer, but I'm not sure if it's not confounded somewhat uh, by the effect of wine on obesity in women, especially over the age of 50 where a post-menopausal woman and upper body obesity contributes to breast cancer. So I think alcohol should be moderation. A glass of wine with dinner is fine, but not a half a bottle. Every, every glass is about 90 calories. So half a bottle, you're looking at 270 calories.
2: And this is for people that are not yet diagnosed. What are the people that are currently undergoing treatment? I
4: think the same applies. You know, small amounts of alcohol have been shown to improve food intake, people who have decreased appetite. So I don't restrict it in my cancer patients.
3: I would, um, I think it's very interesting when it comes to research and researching different areas, Uh, when it comes to alcohol. So it has not yet been proved that alcohol causes quite a few forms of cancer, but that doesn't mean the opposite. It doesn't mean that it doesn't cause cancer, right? We just haven't found the right amount of evidence to say alcohol is bad for you.
4: Well, you know, it depends on the person. Yeah. You know there's a lot of alcohol addiction and alcohol and drug addiction in combination a- around the world. Yeah. And it's estimated about 400 billion dollars of healthcare costs in the United States are related to alcohol. So it's a complex issue.
3: It is a complex issue.
4: Wine is interesting. It has some of the same polyphenols as pomegranate juice called ellagitannins. And it actually red wine with these polyphenols uh, can be beneficial for cardiovascular disease, and we don't know, perhaps even for cancer in small months.
3: And polyphenols, that is only present in red wine, right? Not in white wine.
4: It's present in both, but much more in red wine than white wine.
3: Now that we know that cancer is not just one diagnosed, right? It's 200, Correct. some claim it's in the thousands, etc. There are over 100 different forms of lung cancer, etc., etc. How does this affect giving nutritional advice? Well, there are
4: some general principles that apply to everyone in terms of calories and exercise, et cetera. But having said that, I think precision oncology and precision nutrition can grow together in the research community. So we can now define all kinds of differences in genetics that apply to nutrition. Just as there are differences in genetics that apply to cancer. And then, of course, gene expression is related to something called epigenetics. And you may not know this, but when you go to sleep, about 40% of your genes turn off as your body adapts to the nighttime metabolism. So we need more information on what happens to metabolism in cancer patients with different types of cancer. The assumption has always been. Cure the cancer, nutrition will take care of itself. Eat what you want.
3: I think there's more to the story. I love precision nutrition. I love that expression. It makes 100% sense. Yeah,
4: I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe as a last one, what is your sort of
3: vision for
2: the future?
4: Well, there are, two areas, there are two areas that we look at. One of them is called angiogenesis. A tumor cannot grow more than a few hundred millimeters without growing its own blood vessels. And the late Dr. Judah Folkman discovered this in the 1970s. And we know that fruits and vegetables inhibit new blood vessel growth. So this is also closely related to inflammation. So all the things I've talked about tend to be redundant and linked. So I would leave you the idea that nutrition is not a special area, but kind of an umbrella over many areas of medical and physiological research.
3: So, Dr. David Heber, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. A lot of listeners will be very happy that you took the time and spoke to us today. And we're looking forward to recording the next episode with you.
4: Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Keep up your war.
2: he's quite a powerhouse yeah in terms of his whole energy and persona
3: yeah he just he has so much knowledge and experience within himself yeah. so it's like you just feel he's about to burst and you don't know how to sort of grasp all of that information no yes
2: I I am um, yeah I feel I've learned a lot of things that I will take with me now going forward especially s- surrounding the seven colors uh, of, food, of, yeah. of food or, or and fruits uh, I'm definitely gonna look into ways that I can get all of those seven colors into my normal way of eating I, I think I have one or two us one or two tops
3: on a a normal basis. So I have things to do. Yeah, and uh, more things to learn and sort of incorporate in my diet and my nutritional intake. So I'm going to order the books. I'm going to read the books. I'm going to try to understand what's actually happening in your body uh, when you consume certain types of foods. And I hope uh, all of you listeners have learned something from this, that you're interested and also understand that nutrition can actually affect how you feel and how you cope with cancer. And for those of you who missed, we just had the War on Cancer live event uh, together with the World Cancer Research Fund about food during cancer treatment. And you can find that webinar recorded on our website, waroncancer.com. And next episode, we're going to speak with Fitz Köhler, about exercise and cancer. Such
2: an interesting uh, episode. I'm really glad we managed to get this covered. Exercise is close to my heart and I know it's close to your heart as well. And uh, I'm certain we're going to find out some really good
3: insights. Yeah, And she's a powerhouse as well. So I'm really looking forward. Likewise. See you next time. See you next time.